This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Tuesday's incroyable, incroyable episode with Dr. Tanya Kotler. This is like a belated Mother's Day gift. I hope everybody had a lovely Mother's Day. I'm recording this before actual Mother's Day, so I can't tell you how mine went yet. I'm sure it was fabulous. We probably went to Goodlot, which is this outdoor brewery near where we live. It's the cutest thing ever. They make their own beer. There's chickens running around, and it's like picnic tables and a food truck. It is always such an enjoyable place to go, and Milo can run around. They have some outdoor games. I just love it. So that's probably what we did, unless it was super busy and we couldn't get a table or something like that. But I'm hoping that's what we did. Look at me. It's like I'm talking after the fact, but in the future. It's a weird concept. Anywho, this is one of the most incredible episodes. It is jam-packed full of value. I feel like so many people online talk about attachment and they throw it around when they're talking about different parenting things, but they don't actually understand what it is, how it's developed, the actual science of attachment and not attachment parenting, which is a completely different thing, which Dr. Kotler gets into in this episode. So who is Dr. Kotler? She is a child and adult clinical psychologist, an author and speaker who specializes in reproductive mental health, infant mental health, and parent-child attachment. Tanya holds a PhD in clinical psychology from Columbia University. She also has nearly two decades of clinical experience working at various levels of the mental health system, including emergency care, inpatient psychiatry, and community and outpatient-based settings. She also writes a regular column for Psychology Today called Motherhood Made Real. She is also a co-founder of Rennie. Check it out at www.rennie.ca. This is actually where we recorded this episode. It is a beautiful clinic located in downtown Toronto with a group of licensed clinical psychologists, social workers, and certified body and movement practitioners. They treat children, parents, adolescents, adults, couples, and families. They offer massage, acupuncture, they have yoga classes. So definitely check that out. But let's get to the episode. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Tanya Kotler back to the mom room. I don't remember if when you came on last time, we talked about how we met because people are always like, oh, how did you meet her? And I'm like, it's a really funny story because, well, it's not funny, haha, but the training that we both have is so niche and I try and explain it to people and obviously they have no idea what I'm talking about. So they don't understand how niche it is. But can you explain a little bit about what the training is that we did? And so we didn't go to the same school. You did your PhD in New York. I did it in Ottawa, but I guess our supervisors have similar interests. So just like, so everybody knows, I did attachment training in Minnesota. Yeah, that's where you have to go for the AI training. Yeah. So that was like a two-week thing. Yeah, that's the only way to do it. Okay. Yeah, that part. But you could do it from any grad school, I think. I don't, maybe I'm ruining this for the Minnesota AI training people, but I think you could do it from anywhere in the world. You just have to go there and be trained by them right. because it's a very specific way of training how to code what we'll get into, yeah. the adult attachment interview. 
Yeah. So I did that. And then a little while later, they were like, oh, you want to go to New York and do the reflective functioning training? I was like, sure, why not? So the fact that we both had that niche training and we met at a mom event in Toronto and I was like, oh, like, what did you do your PhD in? And it was like, oh, attachment. I was like, no way. And you're like, oh, I did that training too. I was like, what? We met in, it was mom's TO event. Yeah. And it was totally, I think I was not even talking about attachment at the time. It was talking about trauma. Yeah. And you came over to me at the end and you were towering over me because yeah. I'm, you know, two feet and you're nine feet. <laughs> And so what made us similar was the attachment the training. training. Yeah. And now we're just like good friends. And now and we become buds. Yeah. So, okay. So what was that training? Because just like so people understand what it is. Because I, I feel like attachment and the reason why we could have talked about so many things today. And the reason that I chose attachment was because I keep seeing it come up on social media or people being worried about attachment and I get the feeling that it's a very popular subject, but people don't really understand it. So I was like, that's why I told you not too long ago. I was like, I think we need to talk about attachment, but specifically the AAI and that training. Can sure. you like just yeah. explain so what that is? I'm going to explain it, but probably expand on it later. So the AI specifically, which stands for the adult attachment interview is essentially a semi-structured interview. So you're asked questions, but there is openness to those questions, if you will. And what they're looking at is narratives of your early relationship. And there's different ways. Originally, they were looking at the coherence of your narrative, you know, and we can explain more why as we get into the discussion, the more we talk about attachment. But originally, that's what they were looking at. And with some of the work by Peter Fonagy, Howard and Miriam Steele, there's been this additional looking at these narratives that is this aspect of reflective functioning. Essentially, the only part that may be out the gates to highlight is it's not the same thing as a thing, you know, if you took online your questionnaire to figure out what attachment status you are, that's not this. Like, this is very rigorous. Coding it is very nuanced. And it's really about the way you think about, reflect on, make sense of, make meaning of your early relationships. And so the problem is that now the word is read readily available, measures for it, self-reports, some of which are like the ECR is a measure out there, some of which are actually quite valid, but they're not the same. And we can talk a little bit more about why, but for now, they're not the same. And maybe we should talk about what attachment really is to kind of explain why they're not the same. Right. Because I know when I see people worried about an example that I always give is a mom, I think she had twins or two young children, and she was concerned that she was feeding one and the other one is crying or like having a meltdown, but she couldn't leave. And she's like, I'm just worried, like I'm going to mess up their attachment. And I was like, oh my God, it breaks my heart that people are so worried about the attachment between them and their child, but they don't necessarily understand what it means and how it's developed, how you can damage it. Like, so yeah, let's get into what attachment even is. And it's, I'm actually going to start with what it isn't. 
Okay, good. There is such a deep misunderstanding of what it is because the word's been hijacked, quite honestly. Sorry, you know, any family members of Dr. Sears. And I really mean that because the word was hijacked in the sense that by using the same word, a word that was coined attachment, the science of attachment by John Bowlby, which I will get into, people have come to, over time, merge them. Dr. Sears developed a style of parenting. His first book was actually How to Raise a Christian Child, I think is the title. And it came out of a style of parenting that was related to how he felt in his experience and, and who he was, was the right way to build a relationship. And it's a set of behaviors. And those set of behaviors are really prescribed behaviors that are rooted in the actual proximity to the child at all times. So they are co-sleeping, breastfeeding. I'll call it chest feeding, but he calls it breastfeeding. They are baby wearing. So they're proximity behaviors. And that actually isn't what the attachment science is about. So for anybody who you know decides they're going to hang up now, before you do, the only sentence I want people to take in is what the attachment or the building a bond is about is feeling experience. It's not doing experience. Those are very different. So it's how the child feels and actually how the parent feels, not what they do that matters. And so the child needs to feel felt. The child needs to feel safe. And that actually isn't done by a set of behaviors. It might be, but it also might not be through behaviors. It's done in what we'll talk about a lot today through reflection, reflective functioning, through holding your child in mind, through truly seeing and feeling your child, which is not necessarily done through a behavior. So that's the myth that was we need to Was he a medical debunk. doctor? I think he was a priest, but I worry about saying that and being wrong. So oh, okay. I'm not actually I'm not actually sure. I we know need a his fact first check. book. <laughs> I need a, we need a fact check on that. I do know his first book. While it might not have been called How to Raise a Christian Child, it might have been called How to Raise Christian Children. A lot of people don't know that, and that actually is the angle he came from. And I've read the book, so it also is really important to me to fact check. And it is absolutely okay if that model has worked for you. Yeah, It's just important to understand that that model is a style of parenting. It is not rooted in any science. Mm -hmm. So the science began with John Bowlby, who was a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and I think ethologist. And he, that also might need to be fact-checked, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. And he had this theory that was actually rooted in evolutionary biology. He said that human beings, children, come to the world hardwired to connect and seek safety. That was it. That was all. They don't come hardwired who to connect to. They just come hardwired to seek safety and protection. And that makes sense because what we know about human beings is that they're a lot more complicated than other mammals and they're born and they need to learn how to walk and talk and do like a whole lot of shit that is much harder and with little brains. And so essentially they connect to more mature brains in order to feel safe in this big world. That was his theory. That's how it started. Then he added that it, how that was done was that the child was born to inborn have these attachment behaviors. So they would seek proximity by crying, by 
here's a word that everybody hates, and here's where if your child does this, you get to go, oh, by clinging. So they seek proximity by doing things to get you to respond. And that parents are there to then respond with attachment behaviors, hugging, cuddling, picking up, not necessarily chest feeding or baby wearing. Okay, There's, So these are the innate behaviors that are in us. And what he said was that the goal, and this is probably the most important part, the goal was this idea of a secure base, that the child initially would create an external understanding of a secure base. So I like to think of it as a skating rink, if you're learning how to skate. And it's the walls of the skating rink are the parent. That's a secure base. So that at any time you could go to the wall to be like, ah, okay, you know, refill, take a break, lean against it, and then go back out to the middle of the rink, right? It's your refilling zone. It's your safe spot. That initially children, and you'll see this at a park, if you ever look at parents watching their kids at a park, you know, the kids going there on the slide and they're climbing, and every once in a while they do what's called check back behaviors, right? They like look back, like, are you still watching me? Okay, cool, cool. And then they go back to their slot, right? And so he said, and he spoke about those check back behaviors, that initially the secure base is external, but the idea is that the secure base becomes internalized. So as it's internalized, the child, and later the adult, the adolescent, the adult, develops an internal representation. He called it working model. I'm going to call it representation. Some people call it a blueprint. Quite honestly, same, same. That they create an internal representation of their sense of safety in the world, of their rely- the reliability and protection, of the soothability of their lovableness, they create a representation that they take with them. It's their blueprint or their working model of relationships moving forward. So initially externalized, then internalized working model of relationships. That was his theory. And that is still the theory, 1960s, that is still the theory that has been heavily researched to now 2023. So we have a ton, and we can get into some of the science, a ton of science validating this. None of his theory spoke about behaviors that the parent has to do to develop that sense of a secure base. None. Is it safe to say that somebody can do all the attachment parenting behaviors like co-sleeping, baby wearing, chest feeding, and you can still like not have a secure bond with your child? Absolutely. Yes, so it's because it's two different things. They're not, it's almost one of those, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor and I can't, so I'm not. But it's almost one of those things where we're, like we're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. They're just, we're not, they're, it's not bad, it's not good, it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. So you can feed and you can baby wear. And I'm a mother of three kids, done some with some, didn't with others. It's just not the measure that we should be using when we're talking about attachment. So like that's the the issue is that we're putting the wrong thing in here. And how we know that is because of the science, right? The research that's actually been done. So can we talk a little bit about, and I know just from the research that I did, there was lots of stuff about longitudinal, I hate that word. So let's say you develop your attachment and I'm going to call it a pattern because that's what you told me to call it, not a style. But 
it can change over the course of your life. Like you go to therapy, the way you view relationships can change. So can you speak a little bit about why you call it a pattern, not a style? Because when you say like, oh, I have a secure attachment style, it's like you're, you're, you're stuck. Yes. It's almost like that's it. You're in it. Labeling someone. Yes. Okay. And status. People use attachment status. I mean, I don't know. So, I don't have a Webster's, but status means that there's a hierarchy. But I remember, because even when we were coding the AAIs, each person would have a numerical value based on us coding their interview for the different categories. And then you kind of take all this information into consideration to, for research purposes, put them into a group like anxious, avoidant, whatever. But I remember doing on, I think it was the ECRS, the... The motion, I don't know, but made by Brennan. I can't remember. Yeah. So, it, but that's for romantic yeah, attachment, romantic right? Attachment. So, I remember doing that, making my husband do that. And that's a continuous measure. It's done kind of in a. It's in a, a quadrant. It's a quadrant. Yeah, yeah. So, it's like you have like secure, avoidant, anxious, disorganized, I think. And then you fall somewhere on the quadrant. So, it's kind of giving you an idea of where you fall between the four categories as opposed to like, you're this and you're only that. So, so it's more of a continuous model and it's more of a sense that you, it's, there's a fluidity to it. And in my doctoral work, in my, what le- led me into my doctoral work was a lot of living, breathing and obsessing over this longitudinal aspect of attachment and this idea of corrective experiences. Here I was becoming a psychologist. I was working with early children, like early childhood at the time. And I was doing parent-infant psychotherapy where I was working with, and I still do it, with parents and babies zero to one in the room. And so here I was believing deeply in corrective experience, clearly. Otherwise, why would I do what I was doing? And so it was really important for me to deep dive into the research onto this in this and understand it. And the way it's really important for people to think about attachment is it's never over. You always can repair it. And how is going to be through reflection. And that's a really key piece to this. So if we backed up a little and then we went back to that longitudinal aspect, because we use terms like anxious, avoidant, you mentioned them, disorganized. And some people listening may have associations already themselves, like I'm avoidant Mm because, you know, they took a questionnaire online. First of all, you might not be because, as I said, it's much more complicated, the actual research on it. But let's talk about where those terms came from maybe a little and what they actually are. So the research began with someone named Mary Ainsworth. She's nowhere known as much as she should be. A good friend of mine, I'm going to plug her now, wrote a great book called Strange Situation, Bethany Saltman. And she goes into a deep dive on Mary Ainsworth. And so if you're interested in what I talk about right now. You could read this book. She does a really good job. But Mary Ainsworth essentially did a study first in Uganda and then replicated the study in Baltimore. So two very different populations of mother-child dyads. And she was essentially set out to research Bowlby's theory, which she did and which she verified, so to speak. So what she realized was that So first of all, it was called the strange situation, which 
you know, Sidebar, if I can for a minute, is such an awesome name. And people often think of it like, that's so terrible, like strange situation. Or they think of it very literally because what the actual strange situation was, was a setting where the parent and child would go into a room, but then the mother would leave and the child was left alone in the room with a stranger. So literal, maybe that's why it's called strange situation. But I like to think that if I sat across from Mary Ainsworth, she would agree with me. And that it was called strange situation because the relationship of the parent-child is strange. It's weird. And by definition, strange and weird mean unexpected, not, you know, it's like people who don't like chocolate. Like, it's fine, but like they're weird. Yeah. Right? Like, sorry if that's you, but right, it's strange. <laughs> it doesn't mean bad. I don't mean, it doesn't mean bad. It means unexpected. Peculiar. Peculiar. It's not what would be known. And like, that's what the parent-child relationship is. And so going back to those prescribed behaviors, we're trying to make it this like knowable thing, the parent-child mm-hmm. relationship. Like if you just do this, 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 you're going to have this relationship, like a perfect equation. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals, so you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. 
because it's easier to, as humans, we want things to be black and white, good and bad. But parenting is not, not that way. It's not that way. But people can't. They're like, what? I can't. Like, because I'm freaking it's anxiety, out. Right? Because it yes. it's so overwhelming to imagine that it's nuanced and gray and strange. And that you can do something differently than what I'm doing. And we can still have amazing children. People are like, I can't. I can't. can't. And so I'd like to believe that she was on like setting out to tell the world that like, and, and you see that if you read her, like, again, I, I'm someone who tries to say only what I know, except, you know, I've said probably three things I don't know today, but usually I like to say things that I know. And I've read Ainsworth's work and she, she went into the minds of these mothers and talked about with compassion and reflection, coming back to that word again, you know, why did they do what they did? Why did they parent and why were their children the way she observed? And so I'd like to think she was already putting out in the world, it is strange and nuanced. And at the same time, she arrived at, through doing this strange situation, she measured the interaction at separation and the interaction at reunion. What's really important is- So like, how did the child react to them leaving the room? How did the child and the mom react upon reunion? Yeah, And in between, how did the child do- with the train with the stranger, right? And what's really important to know, she accounted for temperament. So that mattered. Like who you were as a child mattered. So if you were a very tearful child, when you came in the room, you weren't exploring the toys so much. When left with the stranger and after that you had a baseline. So she watched for their baseline when entering the room with their parent. That's missed all the time. That's the call I get for a referral all the time that says, my kid was crying hysterically and I heard about the strange situation and my kid was crying hysterically at drop-off. I have an insecure attachment. No, actually. Please stop doing the strange situation on yourself. (laughs) It's the crying at separation actually was expected and occurred with most babies. No baby wanted to be left alone with the stranger except in nuanced situations, which I'll explain. So what she did was she looked at these separations and she looked at the reunion. And the focus was largely on the reunion. Why? Going back to Bowlby, secure base. The parent's role, what you want the parent to be, is the safe place to help regulate. That idea of co-regulation. I've got you, wall at the skating rink, now we're together, fill up from me, get comforted by me, and we're good. The child's ability to use the parent as a secure base or regulate themselves, was what helped explain this attachment pattern. So why do I use the word pattern? I almost could also use attachment strategy, if you will. I use pattern because it's your tendency towards a way of coping. Mm. You'll have a pattern of coping in relationships that begins from this original relationship. And so what she saw was those coined secure would have this pattern where they could use the secure base to soothe, to feel safe, and then safe enough to explore. So literally, they would settle down to whatever their baseline was and return to exploring the toys in the room. Those who were classified as as what's called avoidant would quite literally, as a word suggests, avoid upon reunion their caregiver. So they would almost seem disinterested. 
possibly in the caregiver, possibly in the toys, possibly in the whole thing. The disinterest was the important part. And the understanding or the representation of the caregiving they had received was that the caregiving might have been dismissive. And so the coping mechanism, which shows up later in the adult attachment interview, which is a style of relating, is a deactivating of the attachment system. Otherwise meaning, don't need you. I'm fine. Mm. False independence. The anxious attachment, adult attachment interview refers to it differently, ambivalent, preoccupied, sound like that word preoccupied. Again, coping mechanism was confusion because there was an unpredictability, unpredictability, unpredictability in the caregiving they received. They would sometimes be angry. They'd hit their secure base. They'd hit the caregiver. And the suggestion or the thought was that the caregiving they received was inconsistent and unpredictable, meaning I don't know when my secure base is going to be there. I don't, I haven't internalized that sense of being safe and lovable. You left me and I was afraid I was abandoned. Mm -hmm. So those were the classifications. Later, the classification of disorganized came about. That is a classification that we see very little and it occurs in situations of abuse, capital T, as pop culture would refer to it, trauma. In that classification, the children would actually, it was, it's very hard to watch. You could actually watch some of these videos online, but the children would kind of freeze. They would do what's considered a freeze response. And sometimes I like to think about in terms of nervous system regulation, the attachment systems having a tendency to, towards flee, being the avoidant, towards fight, being the anxious, towards freeze, being the disorganized. That's like Tanya. I don't know that someone else has said that yet, but that's how I, if you're trying to think about it. But again, these are ways of coping. So it's if you haven't received that sense of I am lovable and safe and soothed and I can trust in my caregiver, then I'll have to develop a way of coping in this world in order to get my attachment needs met. Mm. So if parents are listening, because the strange situation, and like you were saying, it's on YouTube. You can go search it and watch mm -hmm, these. Mm -hmm. I remember they showed us them in that training, and I was just, like, fascinated. But if parents are listening to this and they're like, okay, that's one specific situation where you can, you know, maybe identify a certain pattern, what are other things that children would exhibit when people are like, well, how do you know Milo's securely attached? I'm like, I don't know. I just like, you feel, you wait, feel it. That sentence. Yeah. How do you know, answer it. Yeah. You just like getting out of frame it's, here. It's I'm his, so <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me. He, it's like a million different behaviors that just make sense. You know, like I'm going to go with a suggestion that you're, that you don't actually know, you feel. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. That it's, you feel connected, delighted, safe, loving towards your child. You feel okay within the ambivalence. You feel okay through the ruptures, mm. all of what we'll talk about. And you trust in the relationship. And what we see in research from children as 6 to 18 months is representations and the parents' representations of the relationship 
is mirrored by the child. So if you're looking at Milo and representing the relationship in this way, then when someone says, how do you know? You go, well, because he feels it. Because if I feel we're good, he feels we're good. So how do we get there is a really important question. We could talk about that. But for starters, if you feel that sense of comfort in your love for your child, that sense of safety in your connection, that's a really good place to start because then your child feels that mm. represented. There's a mirroring going on. And that's the, you know, that comes from the more current science we have. That's the still face experiments and that help us understand the importance of the mirroring function and how much children actually feel about themselves what is represented in the parent's mind, meaning they come to see themselves by how you see them. Mm. They come to see the relationship by how you see the relationship. So what is the experiment? So when you say still face, I'm thinking like you're shown images of still faces? No, it's so much cooler. Okay. <laughs> this also is available on YouTube. Now everybody's going to go like YouTube all these cool attachment experiments. And yeah. I'm so excited. Like there are all these people are going to get these like, wow, we huge so numbers many views. of views. Yeah. <laughs> like what a nice reassuring thing in our world. So this research, if you're looking it up, is by Ed Tronic, who I respect deeply and, and turned down his postdoc fellowship. So, you know, if anybody hears this, I'm sorry, Ed Tronic, I was Could have been you on those YouTube videos. <laughs> he developed the, he didn't develop, he, he develops a theory, a lot of theory and his research from these still face experiments. A big name and an important name in doing this work has also been Beatrice Beebe. And what these still face experiments are, are almost an adaptation of the strange situation, if you will. So they're parent and child, but there's no stranger now. Parent and child are in exchange and parent is directed to, during the exchange at some point, to go still face. To, to go, you know. Okay, I feel... Total flat face. Like, I remember in the training, they were showing videos of a child was like in their high chair eating or something. You probably saw the same video. And like the mom was just like stoic. Yeah. So that's a still face experiment. And it can be hard to watch. It is. Um, because what's happened, what they found, and these, I don't, these clips are short and I, I don't remember the exact measure, but let's talk three minutes, probably less. And the still face is even shorter. And so, and mom is told, let's, let's say it's mom told to go still face. And so what you see in that kind of watching the millisecond to millisecond interaction is at first baby's doing those a la Bowlby, you know, attachment behaviors. And if it's a little older baby, it's like smiling and cooing and being all adorable. And, you know, mom's doing like back at the baby, you know, interacting and they're having a grand old time. And then mom goes. She's instructed to do this. Instructed to go okay. flat. And you see the baby make all the bids for connection, at first it's kind of like the baby's kind of going, we good? It's cooing more and mm -hmm. it's escalating and it's trying more to get mother's response. And then you see how the baby eventually deals with it. And the differences do speak to the attachment patterns the baby has understood and whether they believe they're going to get the response they need, the, the sensitive responding they need from their parent. The important aspect of what's come out of this research 
is understanding how two things is understanding the incredible amount of perception the baby has of nonverbal millisecond to millisecond exchanges. It's the realize of how much the parent and child are what I refer to as two to tango, how they are working off each other. It's a collaboration. The building of the relationship is not all on the shoulders of the parent. I'll say that again. The building of the relationship is not all on the shoulders of the parent. They do it together. They're in sync. It's like a song and a dance. One moves this way, the other moves that way. Millisecond to millisecond is happening all the time from the moment your baby's born and they are hardwired to do it and you're hardwired to do it and it is intuitive and it is inside you and you're doing it if you're following your intuition constantly with them. It's not one behavior. It's this constant song and dance. The other is how much we now understand from it that the baby comes to understand themselves or feel themselves as seen and as known. If the baby is crying, the mom makes what's been called by Beatrice Beebe a whoa face. And it's like, it literally looks like the way you would look if you say whoa. And so it says, I see you by literally being the mirror to the emotion. And that babies who've received that don't get overly overwhelmed by the still face because they trust it's a repair, a rupture, and then a repair. They trust in the relationship. They trust in the mother and themselves to come back together again. So the other really important part of what's come out of this research is a 70-30 split where we've come to understand that there's 70% mismatches some naturally inborn in our world. You drop off your kid at daycare. You change their diaper when they don't want you mm. to. You need to leave them to calm down because you can't represent what they're feeling in a compassionate, calm way because they're making you enraged. Mm. And so we know that actually 70% of the time that's what's happening. And not that like, okay, no worries, that's fine, but like try harder. No, like that's good. We want it to stay 70% of the time because what that allows is that through those 70% of mismatches, when we repair those mismatches, the 30% is those opportunities to feel you and me, we are connected. We can move through hard things. I can trust you. I can trust you to come back. You are safe. I have the capacity to regulate through you. You've taught me that through co-regulation and so on and so forth. And so that's the other really important things that have come out of attachment science since the 1960s. I love the 70-30 thing because I feel like there's so much pressure on parents nowadays, especially to be perfect and react perfectly 100% of the time. And if you don't, like I was saying before, like you have one mismatch or you respond in a way that is not ideal, like you lose your temper, you yell, whatever, and you're like, oh my God, like, that's it. I've ruined my child. Like, it's over. But it's more about the repair and that 30%. Because, like, we're human, you know? Like, we have had bedtime battles this week. And I, I feel like I give myself grace way more than probably most people do. Maybe because I understand things like this. And I don't put so much, just like I wouldn't put so much emphasis and like, oh, we had this amazing moment. He's set for the rest of his life. 
Mm-hmm. Like he is like no issues for the rest of his life because we like just, millisecond we just had this amazing day. <laughs> yeah. But like at the same time, when we have a really bad night or a really bad interaction, I'm not like, well, that's ruining our relationship. Like he's ruined now. Like if you're not putting that much emphasis on the good moments, then don't put that much emphasis on the bad moments either. Well, we need to think about why. Like maybe one question to just ask listeners is why so much emphasis on the bad? And Mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about, reflection. Often it's a fear. It's a fear. Where does that fear come from? That idea that I don't, there's no possibility that I'm, going to be able to repair this, that relationships are so easy to break. That's an important thing to think about. Where did that come from? For some people, that might come from early rela- their own mm. early relationships where mismatches weren't tolerated, where you felt you would lose the person you loved most if you did something, screamed, acted out of line in some way or other. And so now the fear that you can't do that because you will rupture your relationship with your child. So sometimes compassionate reflection, where did this come from with me, might be really helpful for people who do tend to think that way. Yeah. So maybe I don't have that. And it's the same with everything in parenting, even like oh, we've been super busy this past week. So we have had more like fast food than I want to. And like people will dwell on like these single meals, single bedtimes, single like anything. And it's like, take a bigger perspective of what's going on. For the most part, in like a month, two month period, we eat really well. So if we have a week that's off, like we're, we're going to be okay. And that's what your child is doing. Your child is extracting from all the interactions and creating this working model or this blueprint. And they're extracting, as I said, now milliseconds of interactions to create this working model or blueprint. So there's a lot that they're using, a lot of evidence to go into where they decide they are safe and where they decide they are lovable. So no singular moment or event can possibly hold that much weight. But if you're listening and going, no, it must slow down and go, what, why? Why do you think it must? Where did that come from for you? What's the fear? And usually the fear lands in a fear of loss of your child, a fear that your child won't be well-regulated. Mm. That's terrifying. So isn't it easier to believe that if you just did this set of behaviors, you'd be good? Mm. The problem is that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people are always like, why do you think people are so like, you know, wanting to say that what other people are doing isn't right and like putting down all these things. And I honestly think it's because people are insecure in their own situation. Like, I can't think of another reason. Because it's the hardest time to parent. There's all the science we've just spent. I have no idea how much time talking about the science. There's so much more. And parents don't have necessarily, you might, the PhD to know all the science. And so you're trying to extrapolate or take from it. And it's so overwhelming. And and you want to be doing it perfect. You want to be doing it's it. The most all of it is thing. at your fingertips saying, do it like this and do it like this. And there's all this evidence. And it's dizzying and confusing. And another expert on another podcast is saying something that probably totally doesn't fit with what I just said. And so people choose to stick their you know, heels in the ground because for a short little bit, 
you feel validated and safer than you do going, mm-hmm. oh, I really don't know what to do here. Yeah. But maybe we could talk a little bit if you want about what's going on with Milo. Oh, my and God, yes. Because I have what I call this 4R method of how I describe to parents how to create secure attachments. Even if you're listening to this and going, okay, I actually think I need to repair or work on my relationship with my child. There are ways, as I said, to do it. It's not written in stone. And so this should be a hopeful message and a real message to parents as opposed to one where people are going like throwing in the towel, forget it. You know, my child's anxiously attached. That's what it sounds like Dr. Collar just said. And so, you know, that's it. I'm done. That's absolutely not true. Yeah. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. This week, it's so interesting because things will pop up with him like out of nowhere. Like 90, 95% of the time, like zero issues, goes to bed perfectly. We can take him out all day. Like he's totally fine. But then all of a sudden, he's not going to bed. Like, okay. And I always talk about why like bedtime is such like a rage-tacular time mm-hmm. because you, you're, you're already, you're yeah, you're out. just, we have tried everything. We have tried like, we had a lock on his door for the longest time and that was fine. We took that off. We're like, okay, like you're big boy now. Like now I'm not nervous about him like leaving his room and like falling down the stairs or anything because he's older. He can leave his room if he wants. So 
just out of nowhere. I don't like my room anymore. I don't like my bed. Like, okay, do you need mommy to be in your room a little bit longer? Like rub your back? Like what? No, like I'm not, I don't like my bed. I'm not going in anymore. Okay. So my husband and I try to like, screw it. Let him stay up, like do whatever you want. So we're sitting downstairs talking about like trying to find a freaking house to live in. And he comes downstairs and he's just like walking around the main floor and we're like, okay, like, Hi, you know, and then I don't know what he wants from us. Like, that's the thing. I'm like, I wish I knew, like, do you want me to go lay down with you for a little bit? Do you want me to read you a book? Like, but no, like he's just, but he clearly wants our attention because he will start banging on the floor or like yesterday he was crawling around the living room meowing like a cat. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't know what's happening, but like Tanya on speed dial. <laughs> so first of all, you're actually doing, a, we're going to see if I could do this because now we're entering a therapy mode, but you're sitting in the chair. I usually sit yeah. as a therapist and I wonder if my brain works from this end. Let's try it. Test it out. Um, I'm going to test it out. Because you're already doing, we were talking a little bit earlier about reflective function and that idea of reflecting on minds, that that's what reflective functioning is. And that in a secure attachment, what happens is you develop a capacity to reflect, to think about feelings, mm. your own mind, and to also teach your children through that, that their minds are a safe place to explore. And it's one of the most important parts of creating a secure attachment. So when you say, I know he wants to be near us, I can tell that. Like, I really don't know what he wants. So the behavioral, the what to do, we're not sure yet. Okay, that's fine. The most important part is a starting point. So when I refer to four R's, reflection is on yourself, recognition is on them. So in a recognition way, it has to actually start with a reflection, which is what's going on in his mind, being curious about his mind. What is he feeling, thinking, needing? That's reflective functioning. Then you're going to actually be articulating that to him. Before you do that, you actually need to think of yourself and possibly your partner. What am I feeling and thinking? Like, what is this bringing up in me? My own narrative, my own attachment. You know, you talked about bedtimes being really hard. Yeah. Does, is this making me feel like trapped? So getting out of this is my free time. I'm, you know, hit my limit of the day, nervous system overload, like I can't right now. So I'm irritable. Well, all of that is going to actually impact how he feels, going back to what we said. And he knows you feel that way. Mm -hmm. So he's reading you. Even if you're doing all the right things and you're going, okay, you could stay here, he can feel fine. You could stay here. Like, and he doesn't want to feel that. He wants to feel the like, I'm still lovable and I'm still safe. Well, that, first of all, that's really hard to do. So, you know, if you really hate what I'm about to say now, that's okay, actually. I'm really willing to talk it out. That's why for some people, sleep training becomes important in some form because they can't remain cool and calm and they're communicating to their child actually a sense of unsafety. They're communicating yeah. to their child this like, oh my God, go the fuck to sleep. And like, just leaving the room is way better than that because your kid feels yeah. that. They don't feel safe See, that was that. me two nights ago. Like, I felt so bad. I, like, cried, like, because I lost my cool and I feel like I'm going to cry now. And my mom was like, I always, like, rage text my mom. And my mom was like, you shouldn't let him see you get like that because, like, 
in his mind, like, but as a parent, I almost feel like he wants us, like he wants that to happen, if that makes sense. So I'm going to disagree with your mom. Sorry, <sighs> Renee's mom. Like, like, so he should see me like well, freak out or? It's neither. It's he might because you're human. Okay. And, yeah. And so he did. And when I went to, you know, four R's, my other two are rupture and repair. So fine. Let's call that a rupture. Yeah, that was and, a rupture. And let's look at the whole big picture. He doesn't want to go to bed. We imagine we're putting it in his head. He wants to be close to you. Maybe he has negative associations to his bedroom, to the lock, to we don't know, but he doesn't like it, doesn't want to be alone, wants to be close. Thinking of secure attachment, you're the secure base. I'm going through something developmentally, probably age four, not a great age for that. They totally want to be close, 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 close again because they finally understand that they are separate and they finally understand that you have a mind that's different than them. Because they finally understand that at that age, roughly between four and five, they also push on that because they want to test that they're lovable even in their ugliness, even in their misbehavingness, even in their worst parts. And so they'll push. And so when we, because we're human too, get dysregulated because it's noisy, because it's late, because we didn't eat, because we didn't drink, because we just want to watch The Bachelor. When we get irritated, they feel it. And then in their minds, they go, oh, wait, we're not okay. We can't move through this. And they might push the envelope. It is not manipulating. It is their attachment system going, wait, I got to get you back, right? And so they up the ante. And then for us, if we don't have the space, we actually end up getting angry. And so the reflection is reflecting on your mind, what happened to me, all of what I just said. The recognition is what's going on with him, all of what I just said. And then there's that rupture repair part where you actually put that into words, where you say to him, not necessarily a bedtime when he's tired, but when you could be calm, hey, bud, I know you want to be near mom and dad. So you name what you know. I believe you. You miss us. I believe you. I see that you're angry if that, you know, if he's acting angry. When we go downstairs and we don't let you be with us, whatever it is, naming, observing, and describing for him his mind so he feels seen and safe. Mm -hmm. Repairing if you have to. Mom got angry yesterday. Maybe that felt scary. Imagine for him. Felt scary for mommy. I don't like getting angry at you. My job is to keep you safe. Part of keeping you safe, here's the repair, is you going to sleep because you need sleep and so does mommy. And this is where you get to decide the actual execution of that. And that's where the world should not comment. And it's based on your resources, your living, your capacities, so many things that I'm going to leave out right now. So you might look at, I'm going to lie next to you all night till you feel ready. You might look at, I'm going to come back and remind you, you sleep in your bed, I sleep in mine. You might come to, I'm going to tuck you in now. Now is tuck-in time, then it's mommy time. So I know you want to be with me, I believe you, but I need to go to sleep. Mommy also needs sleep. So I can tuck you in now, or I can't tuck you in anymore, I'm going to bed. And you might try that. And the most important part is that it stays consistent and predictable for the child but quite honestly, what you actually do is going to work over time because it's consistent and you don't change tricks on them too much. But how they feel through what you do and how you feel through what you do, that's what actually matters. That's why all the conflicts around sleep don't actually make sense mm. because attachment's about feeling felt, about feeling safe. 
just doing something does not mean you're going to be feeling safe. So you do what feels safe for you and what you in reflection think feels safe for your child. Yeah. The worst is like, if we do kind of like the planned ignoring or like, okay, you can be downstairs with us. Mm. Like we're watching basketball, come sit with us. But like yesterday he would sit, I wasn't in the room, but my husband's watching basketball. My husband's like, come sit next to me. Like, come on, like we can watch basketball together for a little bit and then I'll bring you back up. He'll sit right on the coffee table in front of my husband so he can't see the TV. It's like he's pushing your husband to see him. Oh, literally. Like it's so. And then like he'll start throwing. He was throwing his markers. And I was like, Milo, like we can't stay downstairs if you're going to throw things. Like do not throw another marker, please. And what makes it Throws so hard to be a parent I'm like, <sighs> is that you also have to set the boundaries. Like children don't feel safe without boundaries. So you have to set the don't throw markers. You might even have to set the I can't see the TV. Can you pass me a Kleenex? It's funny because I, ma- I, I made fun of Tanya for having Kleenexes in her office because like it's so cliche, like therapy office. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> The hardest part is that there's no exact way to do this and that I think you can say, tell me, but like the tears are the part that feel helpless. Mm. And yeah, so, it's the powerlessness. It's, powerlessness. it's like this little human that's this tall is like running the, sh- like I want, like you said, I this is my time. I want to actually be in my own bed reading my Kindle or watching Vanderpump, like Hashtag priorities. They feel powerless too. Yeah. They're like, I need your help. I don't know how to fall asleep. And you're like, I need you to not need my help because I need my time. And both are true and both matter. And so what you actually do, you're not going to believe me until you do this, but then you're going to call me and tell me it works. And so I'm really excited. What you actually do doesn't matter. It just needs to be explained to him leveled to him and consistent. So he can't come down one night and not the other night. And, you know, one night we're angry and one night we're like, come sit next to me and cuddle. Yes. It's confusing. So it's like we're picking something and we're doing it every day and we're explaining to him why. And it involves in it a recognition of him and his needs while also, because it's a mismatch, your needs and his needs are not matched here, while it involves a reflection on your mind with kind compassion, because what you're doing is you're teaching him to reflect on minds, which we said is a key to secure attachment. He understands you. It's not because you don't love him. You are lovable. And I can't wait to spend time with you tomorrow morning. And why don't we X, Y, Z after school? And I need my time. And so do you. And that kind of reminding and reminding and consistency might be a few hard nights engaging in whatever you choose to do walking him back and forth to his room, you know, until he does, lying with him, whatever you choose to do, going to bed yourself till, you know, and real and not coming out and saying I'm I'm done, you have to go to bed. Whatever you choose to do, but that is done consistently and that is done with compassion and with a reflection on his mind and and an honest reflection on your own that you then verbalize to them so that they can understand your boundaries, that your boundaries don't just appear unlovable and dismissive, Hmm. but they appear understanding and knowing. Can a child have a different attachment with each parent? Right. Like, 
Is that and common? children can develop. It's like a very big anxious thing, I think, from a lot of parents. Like, can they develop an attachment to the nanny? And oh my God, can their attachment be better for it with a nanny or stronger? They or with the teacher or with the it's actually a wonderful thing. Children yes. can develop multiple secure bases, and that's fantastic. But normally there is kind of a primary because if there was only one or two parents in the home early, early when they began to form that, they might still have a pattern towards relating that is taken from those early days that they might bring towards the teacher. But let's say those early days weren't great. That's where corrective experiences come in. Mm. Teacher or nanny, somebody might be a corrective experience of a secure base. So in quick answer, yes. Yeah. And I remember, you know, people just because the internet, when Milo was in daycare or when people talk about kids being in daycare and they're like, why are you having kids if you just want somebody else to raise them? And in my mind, I was like, I am actually so grateful that he goes to such an incredible daycare and he has these relationships with other adults that are not me or his dad. Like, I loved that and saw so much value in that as opposed to being like... It's also so good if we reflect on the mind of the child. That's the capacity to explore. If I feel safe enough to know I will come back to you yeah. while at the skating rink, I can go skate in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Okay, this was a lovely conversation. We are almost at an hour. Can you tell us a little bit about your new office, downtown Toronto, what you guys do here, and then where people can find you online? Absolutely. Because it's so beautiful. Thank you. So I, with my two partners, founded a place called Rennie in downtown Toronto. It's R-E-N-N-I dot C-A. It's a trauma-informed integrative clinic. So everyone on the team specializes in trauma, including many in attachment trauma or complex developmental trauma. So we work with children, adolescents, adults, families from a therapy perspective, but we also have yoga, acupuncture, massage, all that are actually trauma-informed and trauma-trained. So our massage therapists and acupuncturists come from that lens, as do our yoga teachers, and are trained in that, which is really awesome. And we're located in a little house that is commercially zoned in the Little Italy neighborhood. You can still find me, and I still have my website where my own writings, podcasts, everything is still up there. And you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Cutler or my website, Tanya Cutler. I think it's phd.com. And it's rennie.ca. And it's rennie.ca. Okay, but did you name Instagram. it? After me? So what is in the name? <laughs> Here's the, everyone gets to get like the disclosure. It's on the wall on the way out, actually, the definition. But it's the reflection of inner. So it's the word inner backwards. And it actually fits with everything we talked about today. You come to see yourself because you are seen. You don't change. It's just that sometimes we need a mirror to help reflect back to us what's inside us. And that's where the name comes from. Uh, Johnny, can you edit that out and just leave it at she named it after Renee? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this That'd was great. Amazing. So thank you for inviting us to your beautiful office and having another conversation. I'm sure I'll be back now that thank now that for, I know how to get here and set up. Thank you for inviting me. Of course.